0: We are wrapping up today in our series, Old Testament uh, survey series, and uh, we're wrapping up with the book of Job. Um, there are handouts in the back, as always, um, and uh, you know, Job is is an altogether different animal than the other books we've covered so far in our series. The other books in the series have been uh, strictly historic narratives, um, and really kind of covered the the history of Israel. Job is different. Job is wisdom literature. This is a book that is uh, far more akin to Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs than the books that we've looked at so far. So we are going to tackle it a little bit differently, and we need to understand it a little bit differently than some of the other books that we've covered to date. Um, In fact, I want to start out with an uh, analogy that will be, I think, helpful in kind of framing the book of Job in general. But before we do that, let's ask the Lord's blessing this morning. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for its depth, its breadth. Thank you, Lord, that it covers areas of life that we so desperately need it to We thank you for its preciousness and ask this morning, Lord, that you would let me speak faithfully and let your truth land in fertile soil and cause us to love and appreciate you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so starting out with an analogy I'm still in the introduction uh, on your handout And you'll notice I titled it Job the Motion Picture uh, Because in a sense, it's helpful I think to view Job like a movie or a play We're getting a front row seat into a real conversation between friends and God Um, So here's the the illustration, here's the analogy. If you remember nothing else from this class, try to remember this at least uh, as a helpful framing device for Job. Um, So imagine you are a newlywed. This is this is you know you 're young uh, uh, you just got married, and like most newlyweds, you have a concept of marriage, you know what it is. your parents were probably married, you had friends whose parents were married, you went through you know some sort of premarital counseling you have a concept for what to do, but you 're really green at it you 've never actually been married you 've never had to make decisions uh, with somebody else in quite the same way. You've never had to put yourself second in quite the same way before. It's a new dynamic. And right out the gate, you are faced with a really difficult decision. Some big life thing that you have to wrestle through. And it's one of those life situations where um, People's emotions can get can get heavy. Uh, it, this could this could easily become a massive fight between the first uh, between the two of you. It, it may not just be your first big decision; it could be your first big trial together. And on this particular topic, you and your spouse aren't just on opposite sides of the fence. You are vehemently opposed to one another. Um, you 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 absolutely are not on the same page. The opposite of it. And, and, you know, the first couple conversations you have, they don't go well. And uh, it's looking like it's going to go into a bad place. And then in steps someone, me, who cares, uh, I step in, I've got this tape, DVD, uh, and it's it's long. Sorry, it's long. It's ten hours long. Uh, but what it is is it's a couple in the exact same situation as you, same age, socioeconomic status, location. Uh, they're they're pretty much your carbon copy, and they've already wrestled with this issue. And this ten hours is essentially their fights. Their you know it like someone took a videotape and just and just just recorded their actual conversations over the course of weeks on the topic and at the end after you know about hour eight or nine or so the world's best marital counselor shows up and corrects the record he he comes in and he rebukes the things that need to be rebuked he helps them see where they probably messed up the conversation and helps them arrive at a decision they both can agree on now if you were that uh, newlywed couple and I came in with that, with that uh, DVD, show of hands, how many people would watch that? Just about everybody. Yeah, it would be useful, right? It would be very useful. And it would be useful for two reasons, two different ways. First, it would be useful, the ending part, where the marital counselor kind of you know, sets things right. But it would also be useful to watch the couple go through the process, It'd be useful to see how the husband treats the wife, how the wife treats the husband, um, um, how they deal with with the escalatory nature of the fight, um, and, uh, how they deal with leadership and submission. All of those issues on display would be useful to look at and to learn from, what to do, and what not to do. And in the same way, that's essentially what the book of Job is. Job is a man who is. Suffering, who is interacting with his well meaning but wrong headed friends, who is ultimately has a situation corrected by God at the end. But it's meant to be a book that we read not just for the things that are said at the end by God, but also how the situation unfolds we can learn a great deal from how these friends interact with each other we can learn a great deal from um, the things that they say and how they say it. it's meant to be a case study a gritty realistic portrayal of a real issue that is not uncommon for believers how to wrestle through suffering that is, in a sense, what Job is. I put a purpose statement that hopefully uh, summarizes it better than I just did uh, in your handout, which I'll read. Um, But uh, the purpose of the book, Job is wisdom literature. Its central point is to demonstrate the absolute supremacy of God and to remind man of his place of trust and submission, no matter what. But the book also serves as a case study on suffering, comfort, faith, unbelief and flawed theology it is meant to be seen as a realistic gritty portrayal of a suffering man who loves and trusts god who is nonetheless wrestling with an apparently unfair providence and whose friends incomplete theology goads him into unbelieving pity that's what if i do my job right you'll all agree with at the end of this hour Um, so uh, before we sort of jump into things, is that picture clear? Uh, we're, I'm going to hammer this point home a bunch of times, but any initial questions about kind of how best to approach Job? Yes,
1: Aaron. I had difficulty with this book, just because a lot of times the theology sounds just about right, until you really kind of stay the but
2: to me, it
0: <laughs> yeah no it's uh it, absolutely absolutely there there are times where you say amen and then like two pages later go Ooh, i shouldn't have said that yeah it happens it happens it's a really good point and there are some interpretive difficulties which i'll cover uh in a little bit as well all right, well, right let's get into the uh preliminary matters uh things like who the author is and the answer to that is presumably a guy named job um you know this is um this is a story that doesn't take place in Israel. Uh, there aren't any other you know, prophets or, or other folks who, uh, in the book itself at least, that are referenced, that could be uh, you know, contributors or editors or compilers. Um, and the speeches are so detailed and exact that you would expect someone had firsthand knowledge of the conversation. So um, all things point to Job, but like most of the books in the Old Testament, there's a question mark attached to it. Um, in terms of setting, um, J- uh, J- Job 1.1 says that he was a man from Uz, um, and that is an area that is to the southeast of Israel, um, and so that would be, you know, either Jordan or Saudi Arabia, the, the, the lines of the map are kind of funky, uh, nowadays, but in that general ballpark area. So we're not talking about the promised land, we're talking about an area to the southeast of it. Um on the dating front we could probably spend a half hour just on this um but just a couple of of quick notes uh Ezekiel mentions Job in chapter 14 um, and so we know that at least it takes place earlier than that Um, and if you want to make the argument that I'm about to make which is that for Ezekiel to make that reference and for it to be understandable to his audience, that implies that Job was probably, certainly an event that happened a long time in the past but was probably already written and compiled. Otherwise that reference wouldn't make sense to the vast majority of Ezekiel's audience. Um, Most commentaries that I've seen generally take uh, the story sometime between Abraham and Solomon. There's reasons for that, Um, a couple of which in case you're interested. Um, Job is described as a really rich man, but the way they talk about his wealth isn't in terms of talents of silver or gold, but it's in herds and livestock and those sorts of things, which is generally how wealth is described in like the Abrahamic period. Um, there's no reference to the Mosaic Covenant There's no reference to the Promised Land Job uh, does his own sacrifices Even though he's not a priest Which again kind of is back earlier You know, It, it kind of points us to more of a Genesis time frame um, And then um, at the same point in time Job has a really long lifespan um, he's already well educated and well traveled in the story by evidence of what he says and then at the end of it he lives another 140 years um, which is more of like an Abraham-esque lifespan um, than something you would see kind of later on so generally speaking probably safe to put this uh, you know early on in Israel's history in terms of chronology but um, there's no harm in dating it later and some, some do Questions on author setting or dating make sense? Cool, all right. Uh, All that stuff's pretty straightforward. So let's turn to understanding Job. Um, In your handout, the very first thing I want to cover is structure. Um, I'm gonna again. I'm gonna tackle this book a little differently than I had previous books. Um, Normally, I do sort of a lengthy recap of what goes on in the text, but I I don't think I need to in this case. I don't think I got time to uh, as well. So we're gonna tackle it differently, um, mostly because of the way the book is structured. So in your handout, you should see uh, five bullets. So Job has a a two-chapter prologue. Uh, This sets the story for a series of speeches. Lots and lots of speeches in my analogy i said 10 hours of videotape that's kind of what it feels like when you read through the book there's lots of speeches um but in that first two chapters we see job's character satan's attacks and the suffering that job goes through and then chapters 3 to 27 are a series of speeches by four people, uh, Job and three friends. There's actually a fourth friend who doesn't get introduced till way later, which we'll cover. Um, but it's primarily those four people, three friends plus Job, doing a bunch of talking from chapters 3 to 27 when you get to 28 it's an interlude it's sort of uh, almost like a little bit of a tangent on the subject of wisdom and where it comes from and then in 29 to almost the end of the book you have a second round of speeches Um, Job does a bit of a summary of his position um, a guy named Elihu that fourth friend it, it you introduced to there uh, gives a speech and then God has the final word and then the there's an epilogue at the very very end in the last chapter where essentially Job's fortunes are restored and the book wraps up so that's the that's the basic structure today what i'm going to do is i'm going to spend a a little bit of time really focusing on chapters one two and three because not only does context control whenever you're talking about anything in scripture but if you mess up understanding how those first three chapters relate to the rest of the story you will probably have a much harder time interpreting what's said in the speeches so i'm going to spend some time focusing on that but then rather than walk through the speeches, um, because they're, they are lengthy, there's a lot of repetition, I'm just going to cover them thematically. We're going to cover the topics that um, uh, the, 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 the speakers cover. Uh, but before we do that, let's talk about some interpretive difficulties, because there, there are some things that make this book harder to understand than the other ones that we've covered so far in this series. Um, and the first one is Hebrew poetry. And I don't know about you, but I'm I'm happy to confess that I think I lose 30 IQ points whenever I come across Hebrew poetry. Um, it's hard; it really is. It's a, it's a difficult uh, genre. Um, you know, in in um, in our culture, we tend to use alliteration, meter, or rhyme uh, in order to make poetry work. But um, Hebrew poetry is is primarily focused on parallelism or and or repetition. So the idea is. Um, I don't we can't we could can do a whole class on this but we're not going to delve into it but the whole idea is that it's, it's usually a statement followed by some sort of restatement um oversimplification but it's you know the sky is blue blue is the sky Uh, so you end up having um, you know one concept expressed uh, multiple times and that can get really complicated Uh, you can have a statement a series of parallel statements and then a restatement I mean just it can get really kind of messy in the way that they uh, arrange the structure of Hebrew poetry and so It is something that does make it complicated at times um and so especially uh, you know if, if you're not used to it this is where a good commentary would be especially useful um you know going through the book of job second interpretive difficulty is job is a sarcastic guy um this is not a friendly debate. This isn't like four people standing up here and each giving each other, you know, a gracious shot and listening intently. Like, these guys are getting angry at each other as they go. Um, and sarcasm abounds in the text. And so sometimes it's hard to understand, they, are they saying that point straight? Or is that sort of like a mocking, you know, reflection on, on what was just said? So sarcasm does abound in the text, something we have to watch out for as we read through it. And then third... Um, talking past each other so think about a time where you've gotten to a fight with somebody an argument or a debate so i mean do you always in the heat of the moment fully understand what your opponent is saying no right um does emotion ever ever get in your way of course not of course not. you know you just you're just you're just perfectly neutral um Do you ever oversimplify things? Do you ever, um, you know, uh, uh, address not what the person said, but what you think they mean? All of those realities happen in this book. Um, When you read through it, it becomes really clear that Job's friends and Job himself often misunderstands, oversimplifies, glosses over whatever, what their opponent is saying. Um, And so you kind of have to realize that just like a regular, true, human, emotional argument it's exactly what's happening here and so um, in some cases the uh, the interpretation of one person by the others and vice versa is unreliable so you just got to kind of keep that in mind as you're reading through the book um, it's, 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 it's a real human fight does that make sense any questions on any of those difficulties any comments on those All right, cool. All right, let's talk about these first couple chapters then. Um, So again, in a sense, if it's helpful, chapters one and two are the situation, and then when we get to chapter three, it's the very first speech, um, and it's a lament by Job. And that speech then triggers a bunch of reactions from his friends. And those reactions trigger reactions from Job who then triggers more reactions from his friends and it just sort of like escalates until eventually God steps in. Um, And so again, because everything that we're going to read in these, or you're going to read in these speeches as you read it on your own, is a reaction to what Job says in chapter three and chapter three is sort of the, the, the outgrowth of chapters one and two. It's really important that we kind of get this right. Um, understanding chapters one and two is a sort of interpretive key to understanding the speeches. So, uh, I'd encourage everyone if you, if you have the ability, open up a Bible to Job chapter one and two. Um, we're going to read a few verses here and there, um, as we go through this, um, and I might ask for some, some helpful readers, so uh, if you are willing, uh, raise your hand at the time. But basically, first thing we see in Job chapter 1, he's introduced. He's introduced as a rich, pious man who loves God. Uh, it's a good introduction for Job. And then the very next scene, we're in heaven. God is holding court, literally. Uh, Satan shows up, and God is the one who brings up Job in, uh, in verse 8 and basically says have you seen this guy he's pretty awesome um and uh, satan of course accuses uh, or tells god that he's wrong that job only does what is right because of god has blessed him and so in verse 12 god says everything every possession of his is in your hand do what you want just leave him alone and immediately then um, Job's life gets turned upside down in, in, a, in the span of a few minutes he gets four messengers uh, Raiders steal his oxen donkey and kills his servants More raiders uh, steal camels and kill those servants Fire from heaven burns his sheep to death and the shepherds with them And then a wind collapses the house of his eldest son Killing all of his children who were gathered he loses everything literally in the span of, i mean it's the messenger comes like one after another in the space of a few minutes he loses everything except for his wife um and then uh, in in a couple verses that are really good to meditate and reflect on uh in the context of suffering job it's made clear he uh, he does not lash out or lose his mind but he shows the extent of his faith can i get a quick volunteer to read uh job chapter one verses 20 to 22 Rodney, thank
1: you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the
0: Lord. In all this, Job did not sin for the charge of God was lost. Well. So very clear, Job has sort of the ideal uh, reaction to suffering. Um, he does not sin, he worships, um, and he, he recognizes that God is in control. Uh, chapter 2, though, uh, he gets to go through another round of calamity. Uh, we see another time in God's court, another time where Satan shows up. Um, it could be the next day, it could be 10 years later, there's not really much by way of time reference. Um... But when it does happen, God again brings up Job to Satan, um, telling him that Job didn't turn aside. He did good. Um, Satan's response is, well, that's because you have protected his body. Um, A man will give up anything to save his own skin, and um, so God tells Satan, you can attack Job directly, just spare his life. Um, And that's exactly what happens in uh, chapter 2, 7 to 8. Job is struck with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And chapter 2 is very clear, though, that despite this, Job maintains his integrity and his faith. Um, Josh, you had your hand up. Can you read uh, 9 and 10, please? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Then his wife said to him, "You still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and that. But he said to her, "You speak as one
1: of the foolish ones. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity?" And in
0: all this Job did not say for So again, Job has now lost everything, and he has been personally subjected to what seems like a pretty terrible uh, a physical affliction. And despite even the, the one person left in his life, not turning on him, but, but giving him some really bad advice, he nonetheless uh, maintains his faith and his integrity. And at the end of the chapter, he has four friends that show up. There's only three that are mentioned here, um, and so you're forgiven for not knowing there is a fourth until like three-quarters of the way through the book. Um, but all four do show up, um, and, and three of them are introduced together um, as one group. By all appearances, these are very well-meaning friends. They see him in a distance. They weep. um, They approach him. They sit with him in silence for a whole week. Um, All the things that you would expect friends to do, um, they do. Um, And that then brings us to... Uh, the chapter three and the very very first speech so in your notes that's uh, the roman numeral two the catalyst for the fight so job is the very first one to speak and as i mentioned he issues a lament Um, i I call this a catalyst because this is what sets everything off again his friends immediately react to what he says here but um, for your notes just jot down that what job is doing in chapter three is is a is a wish for death Um, he wishes that god who has taken away everything but his wife and his life at this point would essentially finish the job that's that's what chapter three is it's a it's a pining for death um now that throws gas i'm sorry that that's the catalyst but then his friends throw gas and the fire roman numeral three um so from here we get into a big fight um and when the reason why we get into this big fight is because Job's friends' reaction to Job's lament is to essentially accuse him of having deserved all of the calamity that's fallen on him. Um, and so, and this is this is this is not like vindictiveness on their part. This is their theological presuppositions. Um, in their mind, uh, Job's calamity is due to the justice of God, um, and since. God does what is right, Job surely must have occasion to the suffering, or him or his children. Um, from their perspective, Job is like a guy who has committed adultery, whose wife is leaving him, and now he's upset because his wife is leaving him. Um, their response is, you did this, own it repent and maybe you'll be restored or in that analogy maybe your wife will come back to you that's kind of how they're approaching it and so they because they have that presupposition they're you could argue you know lovingly calling him to repent um now if you are a guy who just lost everything including your kids if you're covered in horrible boils and you wished you were dead. How many of you would react super pleasantly to being told it was all your fault? Anyone want to raise your hand and say I would? I would be gracious and kind. No, probably not, right? Um, and that's exactly how Job reacts. He reacts just like most people in the world uh, would. And I, I would actually argue that it's probably fair if you wanted when you read this book. Uh, every time Job speaks to get like louder and more sarcastic is probably a fair way of understanding how the how the conversation goes. Um, he, he, he doesn't exactly love the accusation um, and, um, and I think that's an important point because in that same situation imagine yourself there where, where, where you're in Job's shoes, you've suffered you've got friends who've come and they've kind of thrown it in your face you're going to feel feelings and you're probably going to say things that you shouldn't you're probably going to argue things that probably aren't wise for you to argue. Um, y- y- you can be sort of goaded into going into a place that you pr- you may not otherwise have gone into, and that actually I think resolves a really big tension um, that you've seen a lot of commentaries about Job between chapters one and two and the speeches. Uh, specifically, that chapters in one and two, and the reason why I had you read those passages is because it makes it really clear. Job did a good job. He suffered, and he did not charge God. God with wrong. He he did not attribute evil to God. He didn't sin with his lips. It's literally what the text says. 122, and all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Uh, Chapter 2.10, and all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And yet, when you read his speeches, that's exactly what Job does. It's exactly what he does. And so he goes from reacting really, really well to doing the very thing that he was we just read he didn't do. Um, and, and the the catalyst for that seems to be his friends. Um, I think that's the, the fair re- way of reading the text. Job uh, reacts well, his friends come, and they say things that are really hurtful, and he sort of lets fly. And in that, he ends up ultimately being goaded into unbelieving self-pity. Yeah. Rodney.
1: Uh, there's, there's a twist on... on kind of the, the way the way you're presenting it mm-hmm.
0: which always
1: uh, kind of stands out to me which is that uh, he, he has a remarkable remarkably strong conviction that he has yes uh, so he, he's, his friends are telling him like you did something wrong and you need to repent and he is, is confident over and over and over saying nope
0: I don't know that I would
1: have that much
0: confidence. <laughs> I
1: mean, probably, I would think, I mean, I hope, I would think, you're probably right. Like, I don't something. Um, so so I, I think the way you're presenting it makes sense along with the lines of this escalating argument. Mm-hmm. But underneath that somewhere is, is something that's always kind of surprising to me. Like, he is sure, somehow... That he not done any wrong. And, and even if, if you go back to the idea
0: that Job is the one that wrote this, he's the one saying, and all
1: of this,
0: Job did not sin. <laughs> right, <so>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But yes, 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 yes. No, and, and so Roddy's point is well taken, um, you know, when you read through the speeches, Job has a very firm sense. Of of his his rightness in in the situation, and in fact, um, you know, there's a there's a there's a double-sided sword that goes along with it. So I think, and, and this in fairness, you know, if you if you picked up ten commentaries, you'll get twelve different opinions on how to read some of these speeches. But um, on the one hand. I think the fair way of interpreting what Joe is saying, Job, not Joel, Job is saying, uh, is that um, you know he 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 believes that no sin of his has specifically occasioned this. Not that he is innocent. Uh, he says things very clearly in the in the, the speeches that he views himself as a redeemed sinner, um, but he hasn't done anything that is specifically the cause of this suffering. He is. It's not as if going back to the the adultery analogy. You know, you cheat on your wife, and she. Like, there's a one-to-one relationship there. He doesn't see that relationship between how he was living his life and what he was doing and this particular suffering. Um, and his friends have a very different opinion of that. By virtue of the fact that he is suffering, he has somehow occasioned this because God is not unjust. That's their theological presupposition. Tim. I think that's right and
1: Ryan's point is very good. And, and is it possible, too, not to get too far ahead of kind of the ending, but one of the things that's going on here is that and so sort of the wisdom the purpose of this book is to show the friends drawing, drawing him into controversy on a battleground where this is not fruitfully dealt with. So they're, they're bringing up the question of justice and retribution, and he's playing along with that question. And kind of the whole point of the book is that's not the question. Yeah. And, and so if, we're, if if we're asking that... Did I do anything wrong or not? And we all know that we do that. We're like, "What did I do?" Um, well, there may be, there is sin in our lives. There's always sin in our lives. But, when it's, but it seems like the book is pointing us, that's not really the question we be asking in this situation. God's gonna kind of blow that, blow, blow
0: that away. Yeah, you're you're um, you're stealing my punchline, but that's okay. No, it's totally fine. I mean, I think so. so, so Tim's point is 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 Job is getting goaded into a conversation that's really not the relevant conversation in terms of dealing with the situation. Um, And it's part of what God corrects. And going back to this being, you know, a gritty realistic portrayal of a fight between people, how many of us have had that happen? Like you're talking about something, let's just use your spouse, you're talking about something in the context of of you know your marriage or your friendship or whatever. And and depending on where they go with it, all of a sudden the conversational you know, ground shifts. And you're arguing about something that's completely irrelevant and and you're saying things you probably shouldn't be saying because that's how the conversation goes as opposed to being at the crux of the issue. And that's kind of what happens here. Um, Job Job starts off in a good place. He is in in a lot of pain and he says so and his friends take the conversation to a place it shouldn't go and Job lets himself go there. And in doing so, he takes his, his self-pity, and his to Rodney's point, his confidence that he hasn't done anything to merit this, into a place where he begins to accuse God of wrongdoing. Um, the conversation takes him to a place that shouldn't go. Blake? I think, yeah, there's some really good points because if Job is
2: writing the book of Job, then just like every other book of scripture, we have to remember that God's word is mm-hmm. and So so. There are interpretive challenges, but basically, Job is a book that's always right in the way it's described and written. I also think, whenever I read the book of Job, that there's always two main points which is important to remember, which is, one, that God is always right in what He does, and two, true saving faith can't be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of like the battleground between God and Satan, because Satan is saying that Job will curse God in his face and, 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 that, and that God is not right in what he does. But Job keeps maintaining that God is always right and God maintains that Job is going to come through this challenge with flying colors because saving faith can't be destroyed.
0: Yeah, great points. In fact, we're gonna we're gonna draw some application from that towards the end as well. Um, so I'll will save some comments there. But thank you. Um, and I think I think this conversation shows a couple of things. One that um, the, the book the book is is it's got a lot of nuance and 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 uh, there are different ways, in, in full transparency, of of reading through the speeches and kind of coming away with conclusions. But there's the reason why I'm hammering home chapters one, two, and three because I think if you if you get that right, it puts the rest of the speeches in context. Um, otherwise, you'll find yourself sort of like, you know, going back to what Aaron said, like, 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 you know, you're, you're finding yourself in one of the two camps. When in reality they're kind of all wrong Um, and so if you you miss how the argument goes and how the intention of the book in terms of of that this is a picture into a debate and just like a real argument between people it goes cattywampus pretty quick Um, if you miss that then I think you can misinterpret the speeches really really easily um, one other point, though, just before we 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 move on, um, there is a sense too in which um, Job's friends sort of you know play the take the tempters part as well, and we'll draw some application from this as, as well towards the end. Um, but um, in in using a New Testament reference to set this up, in Matthew sixteen twenty three. Um, you know, after Jesus announces that he's going to the cross, P- you know, Peter, Peter says, "Absolutely not, Lord!" And Jesus's rebuke to Peter is, "Get behind me, Satan! You're 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 focused on the wrong things. Ultimately, um, you're a stumbling block to me." And in the same way, that's kind of how Job's friends, uh, the role that they serve in the story. In fact, it's not coincidental that in chapter two, uh, verses four to five when Satan's talking to God, he says, verse 5, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. It's not coincidental then that just a few verses later in, chapter, in verse 9, his wife's advice to him was curse God and die. Um, Job's friends take the accusers' role, which is exactly what Satan's you know main main role uh, uh, against the believers is, uh, against Christians is, and Job's wife even parrots. His, his framing. Not to say that they're unbelievers or, or, or they're, they're, you know, uh, uh, this is not like a, a, a Judas thing where, where Satan filled them, but this is more they're acting in a way that is contrary to Job's interests. Um, and it's worth noting that his friends in particular get a pretty stern rebuke at the end of the book as well. Um, but I think it's relevant to note, just emphasizing the point, that in arguing with them, Job's pain then turns into self-pitying unbelief and i would argue that that's probably a fair sort of like banner or header to put over most of what job says he is descending into self-pitying unbelief in the book and that's why he gets a rebuke at the end and part of what god is going to step in and correct questions on those three chapters or other questions or comments this was this was fun Aaron. Oh, Smokey. Sorry. Um, <coughs> well, it, it seems that like <coughs> Joe does
1: have one thing that his friends don't exhibit do. <laughs> Like he makes statements, though he slays me. Oh, crazy. Mm-hmm. Now he throws in his. statement that he throws in in the midst of his complaints yep. that start to go down the hill and, um, and then he talks about he knows redeemable the he knows it's yep. um, so there, it seems to me there's a in the midst of some super he makes for a time it's difficult to separate him from his friend <laughs> anyway, I'm like, wait, who's talking to him? Um, He does have things he says. He recognizes his sinfulness, I don't remember, where Um, not related to this, but just in general. And the reason I mention all this is because I'll steal more thunder even though I don't have any (laughs) answer. um, John says, you have not spoken uh, what is right as my servant, Job, has. And I often wonder, okay, what what is it that separated Job from there? Where? He would even be mentioned in Ezekiel and shown to be man of endurance by James.
0: I'm like, okay, tell me, so I'm your (laughs) lap. So, let me, me, it's not actually something I was planning on covering. Um, The first half of what you said is is actually our first theme, but let me get to the second piece. Um, um, You know, the question is, is at the end in in verse, or in chapter 42, um, God ultimately ends up commending Job with the words that Smokey said, uh, or I'm sorry, he's, he's talking to the three friends and says, you have not said what is right as my servant has, I would suggest that what Job said that was right, that God commends, is the words, I repent in dust and ashes. Um, Not so much what he said in the speeches, but his reaction to God's testimony to him. I don't think God necessarily is commending the content of Job's speeches um, as much as he is commending Job's reaction to God's speech. Um, In Ezekiel 14, the reference is actually to Noah, Daniel, and Job, um and it's specifically that even if those guys were alive at the time they would not be able by their righteousness to deliver um uh, anybody other than themselves and so you know god is actually it's a condemnatory word to israel at that point um and the in that context job delivers his friends at the end of the book uh, the rebuke that Smokey is mentioning is the rebuke to the three friends who uh, who didn't repent um, and Job offers sacrifices on their behalf that they may they may live um, and so Job ultimately repents and having repented he delivers his friends from um, you know God's wrath as well but in terms of the first piece um, you know the idea that, that Job sort of intermingles good things with bad things 100% accurate and um, and that's kind of this, this first theme, believing unbelief and Christian suffering. And I, I want to emphasize again the point, and I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, so forgive me, but it's a real debate. It's real people real feelings wrestling with real issues and when i say that job is goaded into unbelieving self-pity i don't mean he goes from like righteous guy to like atheist right like this it, 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 there's a scale um in 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 unbelief um and so this is this is this is this is not someone who just you know is abandoning god and and nothing to do with him um this is this is a guy who is who is suffering uh at, at hardship and he's wrestling um this is someone who's hurting confused angry wanting to die but someone who yet knows a great deal of biblical truth uh, someone who knows loves and trusts god but he's wrestling with this horrible painful providence that he doesn't understand and believes that he doesn't deserve Um, so job is not we we can't we can't make this a black and white issue just like every christian in this room who undergo suffering at some point we're going to do it partly good we're going to do it partly bad and that's what happens with job as well that's why this book is so real and why this this as wisdom literature is so beneficial so we can learn um so much from 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 job and how he reacts and what to do and what not to do the same thing we can learn a lot from his friends what to do and what not to do and so, in a sense, sort of part of the the, the the thrust of this book is watching Job wrestle through these things. Um, fortunately, we have God to correct the record at the end, but that's part of why this book exists, and part of what we're supposed to take away from the speeches is sort of this gritty, realistic portrayal of someone who's wrestling through these issues. Does that make sense? All right. Second theme that we see in these speeches, and again, um, the speeches are really long, so I'm trying to cover these thematically kind of by topic. Uh, so in addition to sort of the reality of wrestling with, with suffering and believing unbelief, um, is, is the core of what I see as Job's issue. Um, and again, this might be a hot take, uh, folks can disagree, but re- really at the core, I, I think you can say Job is, is demanding to understand the why, um, And that's partly kind of what God corrects at the end. And as a point of fact, God never tells Job why. Um, Now, if Job wrote the book, eventually at some point in time, he learned why because he's the one who wrote the scenes in heaven. Um, But at least in terms of the moment at the time when God responds to Job, he never answers the question, why is this happening? Not once. To Tim's point, it's not the point. But Job is demanding to know why over and over and over and over again these speeches. That's what he's focusing on. He wants to understand why. And... This is something that happens super commonly when people suffer. Uh we also sort of have this innate demand to know why. But if we're honest with ourselves, this isn't like idle curiosity. Like Job doesn't want to know why so he can write a an academic paper on it. He wants to know why, for the same reason all of us want to know why when we suffer. So we can evaluate whether it's worth it, whether God did the good thing in making us suffer. Um, and that's the reason why I I think Job earns the rebuke from God and partly the reason why God never answers why did this happen to him because what Job is doing is an implicit demand for God to justify himself. His desire to understand the why is tantamount to asking God to submit his reasoning for evaluation and when you get to God's speech which we're going to cover in a second God makes very clear, I'm God and you're not. This is not how this works. I don't put my 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 plans and my thoughts and my judgments before you for evaluation. They are, and you accept them as they are. And he says a lot more than that, but that's part of his response to Job. Questions on that before we go on to the next theme, Christina. Um,
3: first question is. Um, well first is an extension of that I think a lot, a lot of times in our suffering we want to know why not only so that we can judge whether or not it was fair but also so we can avoid that kind of suffering <laughs> in the future and to do that for others as well even in, yeah. in the body we want to judge others suffering so that we can be safe from that suffering and or avoid it in the future um, yeah. Too, and I think that's like just a human nature thing that I'm still trying to wrap my brain yeah. around how to like not jump to because I think that that's even Job's friends who are like they're like you know I would say it's not just a worldly conversation it's a church conversation that they're having these yeah. are all people who fear God yep. in some sense or other and um, and so it's like kind of a, a fight within the church <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> know kind of situation um, but my question is, is you say that Job understands why because he writes the heavenly scenes and I have never still understood, like, like I don't understand, why, why is God and
0: Satan having this conversation in the first place? Why? I mean, like, I don't know. <laughs> so, I like, get a to tell him, like, kid, like, why? <laughs> so let me, let me reframe that uh, to, be, to be less confusing. Um, and, and, and please also note that I am presuming that Job is the author and saying that he eventually understood the why. If he's not the author, then he never seems to understood the why. But when I say he understood the why behind it, not so much uh, the the ultimate reason why God is pointing out Job, and that that's never explicitly said, um, but at least he understands sort of the context and lead up to it. That it's not necessarily something that he did. You know, he didn't offer a sacrifice wrong. This that there there, there was something else happening outside of himself that occasioned the suffering. That's what I mean when I said when the understanding of the why. In, in reality aside from other things in scripture like the fact that God works everything for his for for, for for the good of us and for his glory like there's never really anything in the book that says why God pointed out job um, and, and why this ultimately happened we know it worked out for job's good we know that it worked out for God's glory our collective good as well um, but beyond those three principles couldn't tell you sure Rodney. Uh, it might be trying but God did it so he could break the Yes, that would be our collective benefit. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. Why was that man born blind, said Jesus? Because, yeah, so that, that God's glory, God's power might be displayed. Josh. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about the, the this
1: comment uh, about, like, why does God, like, why don't we even have this whole thing with Satan in the first right place?
0: And it's like, God is like God invites Satan. He's like, "Hey, come, come here. Like, look at my guy." Yeah. <laughs> and he's like dunking on Satan. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it just it just reminded me of what I've was reading, were reading, reading previously uh, last week, Ephesians, kind of, or what I was reading, um, where it talks about. in um, Ephesians, um, I just have it. but basically it's, it's it's chapter two or three, but he says. Uh, basically that God is, is like I'm saving my people, I'm like, doing all of this so that like I can show my greatness to the, like every everyone in the heavenly places. Like, mm-hmm. all the heavenly things, like whether that's Satan or angels or whoever, is like I get to show my greatness and like impress them too as a result of what I do through my people saving. and saving. Yeah. It's kind of like exactly what we have to Yeah. It's like hey hey heavenly people can here? Like, <laughs> look at me. you can't do anything about me <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah, all all great points, right? I mean, going back to what I said to Christina, you know, God's glory is certainly a reason for Him doing everything. Job's good, and for the benefit of every single person of faith who is going to read these books, those are you could kind of say it happened for one of those three reasons, or all three of those reasons. Um, but you know, whether or not. This was also something to you know, like a, a corrective event in Job's life. I mean, there's there's other, you know, ways you could sort of understand how God worked it for Job's good at the end of the day. But I think those three big broad buckets cover ultimately re- the reason why Job suffered the way he did. Um, I just wish there was something, you know, more explicit and more granular that we could we could focus on. I, I, think that, um, sorry, so I think that something
3: that the book of Job does Is it provides a bigger context and understanding to um, God's justice and wrath expressed through consequences. Now, the consequences here on earth because because you do have you have situations with David and Bathsheba where they lose a child because of David's sin. That's the direct consequence that he experiences here on earth. Even though he repents, he still loses. There's a consequence that God builds out, and there is it is clear. So you understand why these. These friends are saying, hey, buddy, you know, there's some sin that you're not telling us about because, you know, like, it, or the, the people, you know, like, you understand why New Testament believers are, or, um, or even the Pharisees are curious as, like, why, why are these people suffering, you know, like, blindness or whatever else it is, when, or, or like, you know, like, there's, Demon possessed people in the New Testament that you know, like they're clearly the consequences are associated with you know throwing themselves in the fire and such. You know, like there there physical stuff associated with demons and sin that can look very much like the consequences of sin here on Yeah. And so like like I at least think, I think that that it broadens up the, <laughs> the whole like, um, scope of things into like okay, there's there's outside stuff. There.
0: It's
3: not dissolvable.
0: You it, almost need that very few times. that out. Yeah, I, I want to save that as well for the application, um, but that's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic point, um, and, and it's something that I think we can bring out as we go through the application stuff. Um, but for the sake of time, let me let me let me jump on. Um, there's another theme that we see in these speeches. This is a little more implicit, um, but it's the fallibility of people. The fallibility of people. Um, so, Job's three friends clearly has some erroneous views of, of God's administration of the universe, which we'll cover next. Um, and, you know, I think Job has obviously made some mistakes himself uh, in his speeches. Um, but there is that that uh, fourth friend of his uh, um, who joins the conversation. He joins the conversation late. He shows up in chapter 32. His name is Elihu. Um, and... Um, It's interesting how he gets introduced. So chapter 28 is this interlude on wisdom and where it comes from, hint, God. Uh, And then all of a sudden we get, um, you know, Job kind of does a a little summary of his position and then Elihu shows up. And Elihu is the next main speaker. He says a bunch of words and Job does not get a chance to respond to him because second Elihu is done talking, God jumps in. Um, And while Job gets rebuked, job's three friends get rebuked elihu doesn't um and so it it seems to me at least that he is being put forward in the story in a way that indicates that he gets it mostly right and i think there's there's a couple of things that uh, we can say about what he says um But even as you read his speech, though, it becomes clear. Some of his theological leanings are very similar to Job's friends. Um, He grossly mischaracterizes things that Job says, and he's introduced as someone who is just angry. He's been listening, and he is angry at Job. He's angry at Job's friends. He's angry at the debate. And so he starts off hot in his conversation. Um, And so while he gets a lot of of what he says right, I think. Um, How he approaches it and the fact that he just displays himself to still be fallible and make mistakes and mischaracterize things in the conversation is just another indicator that no matter how... uh uh, accurate one of us might be in one of these debates what we need is ultimately for god and uh, to have the final word going back to that wisdom interlude in 28 wisdom ultimately comes from god and even the the best wisest person in a given conversation needs to ultimately be reliant on god to get the final word which is then no surprise that again that second elihu is done talking that's exactly what happens god chimes in and gets the final word um but before we actually talk about what god says let's talk a little bit about this other theme of wrong views of god's administration um that is very implicit uh throughout the speeches um and i I think that there are three did i put all three in your notes i did yes okay so there, there seem to be three basic misunderstandings that job's friends put forward the first is that God runs the, the world in a mechanistic way, uh, a, a.k.a. Um, you, know, you put an in input in, and you get an output, and that works that way all the time. Um, in other words, if uh, someone's going through something bad and God is just, then it automatically means that that person deserves the bad thing they're going through. Um, and obviously, that is not the case. If everything were perfectly fair we'd all be dead. Um, That's how that would ought to work. Um, There are certainly, God God does not run the world as if it were a machine. Uh, The second and somewhat related issue is that good things are a sign of divine favor and bad things are a sign of divine disfavor. Um, That certainly ignores the fact that the wicked do prosper for a time, which is something that the psalmists wrestle through at times, um, it also would mean that Jesus is a sinner because he died on the cross. Um, and uh, that obviously is not the case. And then third, um, and this is the one that God really corrects, is that man in his infinite, I'm sorry, in his finite wisdom can somehow still know the breadth, depth, and dynamics of what God is doing in the world. Um, and that is all three of these things are are going back to kind of christina's point these are all super easy traps for us to fall into um job's friends represent and we we see again we see this in the pharisees we see this in the new testament we see this you know throughout i think you know uh, the old testament as well these sorts of viewpoints are easy for us to fall into um and um and and they're they're patently wrong which is what god ultimately corrects next and um so that that brings us to his speech um And I titled the summary of that, God is God and we are not. Um, I mentioned that Elihu did a pretty good job of summarizing things. I think we can distill down what he said uh, into four things that God ultimately affirms. One uh, is that, yes, God may cause suffering for us for our good, even if it isn't directly related to something that we have done wrong. If he does, that does not make him unjust or wrong. And if he does, we shouldn't wallow in self-pity, nor do we get to stand in judgment over God. God is God alone, and our job is to trust his rule and be faithful. I'm taking a a gracious view of Elihu says, but I, I, I think that's a fair summary of what he does say. And that is, I think, very much what God hammers home. Now, God does this in a very powerful way. He essentially spends all of his speech time asking Job a series of very rhetorical questions. Were you there when I put the stars in place? were you the one who decided how the gazelle runs and you know uh, d- designed the, the muscles in his legs you know he asked these questions to job um, and it's 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 funny i would have expected god's response to job to really have been sort of do you doubt my goodness? Do you doubt my, my fairness? Uh, you know, and, and ask questions about his love and graciousness. But God doesn't really do that. His, his questions are really more geared towards cementing him as the sovereign ruler of creation and the one who designed it and runs it. And these questions are intended to make Job realize that God's administration of creation is a topic that is well beyond him. Um, We don't get to sit in judgment of God. We trust his rule and we are to be faithful to him. Um, I, I think you could summarize what God says is that ultimately in the vastness of everything that God has created its incredible complexity and the power and wisdom it takes to make everything run as it should is so far beyond human comprehension that to ask God to justify himself is not just blasphemous to his role as sovereign creator, but it is wildly prideful because it presumes that we have the ability to comprehend even the smallest part of his plans and purposes. I think that is the message that God hammers home to Job in his speech. It's not... I'm a good God, trust me, it's, what I'm doing is beyond you. And this is the ant crying out to, you know, a creator, tell me why you're doing what you're doing. And you don't have the capability of fathoming it all. Your job is to be faithful and to trust. Which is a hard message, but a very, very, very necessary one for us who have a tendency, just like Job, to cry out and demand why when we suffer. Questions, comments? Because application's next. All right, let's do this. I got about 10 minutes, and uh, and I got like two hours worth of application. So um, I want to do this in a different way. Uh, So in previous classes, you usually come up with like two to five points of application, spend some time talking through those. Um, I don't want to do that this way. Um, I, I, want to, I want to do it slightly differently. So, you'll notice in your handout you have uh, four categories. That's what they are the categories interactions with the suffering, human limitations satan's limitations and schemes and miscellaneous um i have a couple of dozen different points related to each of those um and i'm going to rattle them off pretty fast um the goal is not for you to write them all down the goal would be for you to write down the ones that resonate and by the way i'm happy to stop and go back to something if you want me to to clarify but the reason why i want to do it this way is because this book is intended to be something where you can keep going back to and keep drawing out observations and applications. Half the people who raised their hands in this room did that already. They're looking at the way people interacted and the bad theology that was there, and you're drawing out sort of, you know, applications. Job's friends, for example, and their erroneous views of God's administration. One application point is: don't think that way. Um, you can you can you can gain a lot. Um, and so I'm hoping to do this in a way that sort of models just how much you can take away from a wisdom book like Job. Uh, so this is either going to go really well, it's going it's to crash and burn, one of the two. Um, hopefully it's not the latter. But again, if you, if you want me to come back to something, I'm happy to. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these really quick. Um, and uh, feel free to, uh, to ask me to slow down or email you after the fact. Uh, But interactions with the suffering, we can learn a great deal about just how these people talk to one another. Uh, For example, we can learn that people who are suffering uh, um, are not always perfect in what they express about that suffering. Uh, We can learn that people who are angry say things they probably should not say. We can learn that when someone is suffering, even if you think that the suffering is their fault, it really doesn't help anyone to get into a fight with them over it the last thing we want to do is make a bad situation worse and tempt a brother or sister to sin or cast doubt on our love for them that doesn't mean you don't say hard things but um, you know if it's escalating into a 26 chapter fight you you probably should should stop Um, sometimes uh, we can be wrong in our assessments of other situations we can learn uh, that sometimes when we when we suffer because others suffer, and I'm talking about Job's wife here, um, we can be tempted to try to fix our pain rather than truly help the other person. It's the only reason I can think where why she would tell him to curse God and die is because it's a it's a way of ending her suffering um, and not just his. Um, we also can learn uh, that, that self-pity, if I'm right about Job's motives, that self-pity can easily push us into Unbelief, and we be careful about how much and and what form our, our our lamenting of our own suffering takes. Under the topic of human limitations, uh, number one, it is rarely a good idea to try to read providences. Um, you know, looking at what happened and try to infer God's intent out of stuff is is usually a fool's errand. Um, related, we don't usually need to understand the why behind suffering or our circumstances to be faithful to what God has called us to. Now, to Christina's point... There are sometimes correlations between our suffering and, and things that we've done, and it's good to understand the consequences of sin and, and learn lessons. So, I'm not saying that's, that's not the case. Um, but in order to be faithful to what God called us to, we don't actually need to always understand in minute detail the why behind everything that happened. Um, related, we also need to recognize that God's plan is much bigger than you or I. Um, you know, Romans 8.28, one of the, the sweetest and most often cited verses in the New Testament, rightly so. Uh, God works all things together for our good. Um, but it's not just my good in that moment. It's it's the good of every believer. When when there's a drought in California, works together for my good applies to me. It applies to the believing farmer in Coalinga whose farmland won't produce enough this season. And it applies to the believer in Switzerland who all of a sudden gets to raise the price on the almonds he's selling uh because of the drought in California. Like there's a bigness to what God is doing in the world and it works together for the good of all of his people we may be afflicted for the benefit of others but our our job is 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 to recognize that god is doing things that are far beyond our comprehension and that we will never always recognize what he's doing Um, we also can learn that even on our best day we are flawed and we can err Um, we we need to recognize the power of emotions and circumstances can have on our thinking Um, in some cases it's wiser just to let the issue sit, walk away, and revisit it when we're clear-headed. Um, we learn in chapter 28 that wisdom comes from God um, and that as such we should always be willing to let the word of God have the first and last word on a subject. By the way, I know these are not like necessarily the most profound things in the world, but they're all direct applications from just a, a read-through of the book. Um, also, too, you know, I, I think we can take an application of the fact that, that God... Spoke directly to Job, and he could have sent a prophet or somebody else to to speak truth uh, to Job. But the fact that he came and spoke to Job directly, you know, sometimes that's what the redeemed heart needs to hear. We need to hear directly from God, and certainly today we don't hear from him in you know some inner voice or from the whirlwind, but we hear from him in the the Word of God. And so I think a, a, an application point is as we're counseling or talking with other brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes it's infinitely better not to just paraphrase what the word of God says but to bring the exact words of scripture to bear on the situation sometimes that's what, that's what changes the whole dynamic uh, in terms of Satan's limitations and schemes um, we you know Satan is described in 2nd Corinthians 4 4 as the, the, the God of this world uh, referencing you know the extent to which he has he, he quote unquote rules it um, but we see in this book he can do nothing that Yahweh does not permit And so we can recognize that and we can be encouraged by that. Nonetheless, we can also recognize that he takes a great deal of delight in the destruction and the pain of believers. And he is an actual threat and something we need to take seriously through guarding our hearts, keeping the faith, and prayer. Um, And I think related to, we also can take away from the book that sometimes uh, it is true that our faith can be somewhat dependent on good circumstances. To Blake's point, not that anyone could could actually follow, fall away permanently, but sometimes we are really strong in our faith, uh, commensurate with the blessings that we have, and when those goes away, we find ourselves uh, realizing just how shaky some of the ground was that we thought we were standing on. Um, in fact, Satan's attack on Job is strategic precisely because the robustness of our faith can be robust because things are easy. Uh, And then uh, uh, lastly, just as a miscellaneous point, I couldn't classify this otherwise, but you know, if I'm right about this book being a, you know, a, a picture, a play, something that we're supposed to be looking at and learning not just the big picture theological concepts but also from how these people are interacting with one another, um, in the same way, we, we can watch and learn, should watch and learn from the brothers and sisters around us. Um, it is always good to learn what to do and what not to do as people are relating their experiences and... You just kind of watch each other's lives. That's part of the reason why we live in community. Is because if I had to figure out everything on my own, if you had to figure out everything on your own, it would be miserable. I would much rather you learn from my mistake than repeat it yourself and then learn on your own. So that was a lot of application. Um, hopefully, that illustrates you know the point that there is a lot that we can take away from this book. Um, but we are at time, so I need to close. But uh, if you've got any questions or comments or anything you feel I didn't address, or you just want to argue with me about stuff, totally fine too. I'll be up here. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are God. You are the sovereign and ruler of creation, and we bow before you in your majesty, in your greatness in your care, and in your control. I pray, Lord, that um, we would end this series uh, with a renewed appreciation for the Old Testament and a renewed appreciation for who you are, Lord, and your role in the lives of your people. Um, May we, again, just be edified and encouraged, and may our faith be strengthened as a result of going through these books together. I I pray this, we pray this in Jesus' name.